Well, good morning and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. We are so glad that you're here this morning, and I truly do hope and pray that after this hour together is complete, that you can also look back on the time here and say, I'm glad that I went. I was glad I was a part of Encounter Church. And the reason why I say that this morning, that I hope that you can say that at the end, is that today is going to be a tough tough message. I think um, maybe for me to give, but probably more so for us all to to hear it. Because today, uh, part four of the series called Brave, we're taking a look at something that like like lurks inside of all of our hearts. We're we're taking a look at at something that is so uh, chaotic and even so destructive that actually has the power to completely ruin all of our friendships, all of our relationships, uh, significant relationships of any kind, married, dating, whatever it is, even even boss-employee relationship or, or, or owner-manager or relationship. It's got the power to completely unravel and crumple destroy all of these things. In fact, what we're talking about this morning is so, is so absolutely destructive that C.S. Lewis, this great uh, Christian author of the 20th century, uh, wrote out, he goes, if you look at all of the deadly sins, and he's, all of them, right, the anger, lust, uh, the sloth, whatever they are, all of the deadly sins, they're all nothing more, and he said, than just a flea bite compared to the one that we're going to talk about this morning. And the one that we're talking about this morning, a lot of theologians also say, is actually the head, is the, is the starting point of all of those other deadly sins. They flow out of this one that we're just about to talk about this morning. And in fact, it is so destructive, in part because of how remarkably difficult it is to see Not in other people, but in ourselves. It is so remarkably difficult to to spot in ourselves because C.S. Lewis also says, in fact, we we know that it lurks inside of our hearts because when we see it in somebody else, we have such a nasty, such a visceral reaction. And the more it's inside of us, the nastier and the more visceral our reaction is when we see it in somebody else. Of course, what we're talking about this morning is pride. Pride. And and we're not talking about the kind of pride that says that I'm so proud of my kid when she brings home like a a macaroni art portrait of herself from school and I want to put that in the refrigerator and say, I'm so proud of you, honey. I thought by 12th grade you'd be a little bit beyond that. But it's not like that kind of like like good, holy pride, the kind of pride that you have of your family, the family that you're a part of. It's not the kind of pride that you have in, in coming to your church, your church, I'm proud of my church kicking down the doors of hell on a weekend-by-weekend basis. It's not that kind of good and holy pride that we're talking about this morning. It's the kind of pride that, again, C.S. Lewis says, it's a comparative kind of pride. It's the kind of pride that says, it's not good enough just to have something. I need to have more of the thing than the next guy. It's the kind of pride that says, I'm not going to be content with just just being rich. Or I'm not going to be content with, uh, with just simply being clever or better or good looking. It's the kind of proud that says I have to be richer, I have to be cleverer, and I have to be better looking than the next guy. And the destructive, chaotic power of pride is that there's always going to be a next guy or a next girl that's always going to have just that little bit more than what you have, no matter what the thing is. And it will eat away. It'll eat your soul from the inside out. It is that absolutely destructive. It's the kind of pride that we're talking about this morning that it functions almost as if it's a prison. 
It's a, it's a prison that, that keeps us from celebrating somebody else's success. It's a kind of prison that keeps us from apologizing and admitting when we're wrong. It's the kind of prison that admits that we don't know something and that we need help or, or admits that we maybe made a mistake in the past. It's a prison that the author of Proverbs, in Proverbs 16, verse 18, called it, he said, it's this kind of pride that goes before destruction. It's that kind of pride. It's that haughty spirit that comes before a fall. Now, that's that destruction I want to talk about this morning. That's the kind of destructive pride that if we, if we let it go unchecked, like I said, it will consume our relationships and eat them, rot them out from the inside out. And we don't want that to happen this morning. So I want to tell you a tale of two kings. It comes to us in the book of Daniel. And I think uh, the kings give us such a remarkably clear picture of, about how to take the antidote to pride and to not allow this, this destruction that we're talking about to come and, and take us over and to consume us from the inside out. The first one comes Daniel chapter four. Let's go there in the Bibles. The words are gonna be on the screen behind me, but the page number is actually 616. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Ari Cota, big Grand Rapids fan, doesn't matter. Anyway, there's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you if you wanna follow along that way. Otherwise, we're a smartphone-friendly church. We pick it up in Daniel chapter four, and we start off in chapter four, verse four, where it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I just think this is so cool, and you're just going to have to, like, captive audience, like, deal with this thing. Dirk's little tangent here. I love that it's just Nebuchadnezzar, this great historical figure of Nebuchadnezzar. They're all the history books, and you took a world history class, and I'm sure you studied a little bit about Babylon or Persia or something like that, and I just think it's so cool that Nebuchadnezzar, the Nebuchadnezzar, actually had a hand in writing our Bible. Because Daniel chapter 4 is largely a story that King Nebuchadnezzar tells. And, and the people of faith at the time, and then the Christians of faith later at the time, said, this story is so good and is so powerful and is so helpful in our journey that even though it was written by really a wicked king like Nebuchadnezzar, we really ought to include it in our Bible. But anyway, I, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar, I was at home in my palace, I, contented and prosperous. He's got a good thing going. I mean, first of all, he's got a palace that he's hanging out in, and he's contented, and he's prosperous. Little could be, could be better for Nebuchadnezzar at the time. In fact, the palace that he's talking about and writing about, if the historical records are kind of right on this one, um, this is a brand new palace that he built in a brand new capital city in the kind of southern kingdom of Babylon. Because he was that powerful, and he was that influential, that he could have a new capital city built in a new palace to be built. That's the house that he's talking about. It's a brand new home. In fact, at this point in history, we see Nebuchadnezzar is so strong and so powerful and has such a big army that there's not even any battles or any significant wars that are being waged really at all. Mostly because he is so strong and his army is so big that everybody else in the known world to him is simply afraid to attack him. There's a lot of reason that he has to simply be content and prosperous in his palace. And if that all isn't enough, this guy is firing on all cylinders. He's got, the, he's got the job thing figured out. He's got the relationship thing. He's got the family thing figured out because he's got a kid that unlike most kings and like their sons and the princes where they're always at war and faction and this, that, and the other thing. No, no, this is actually a good, healthy relationship. This 
kid that he has, his son, so that's a good thing for a king in those days, is now growing up and he's looking up to his dad. He's not like a screw up at all. He's like a developing young leader. And now Nebuchadnezzar is actually thinking about, about retirement, which is something that kings never get to think about. You just die. But no, Nebuchadnezzar has such a, a, a son coming behind him that he's thinking, I can do this co-regency kind of thing where I can slowly like, like pass over my kingdom to him. And he's, he's sitting back like on his porch and he's just soaking up how good life really is. And at that point in the story, you know, like something's going to give, something's going to happen. And that thing happens in the very next verse. In verse five, it says, he writes, I had a dream. I had a dream that made me afraid. And as I was lying in bed, the, the, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, like, wait a second, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he has a dream. We're probably going to hear some interpretation and some exes out of that. Didn't we hear this one before? You did in Daniel chapter 2. It's a very similar story, except that one now, key effect, was 25 years ago by the time this one happens. I just think that's important because I think that Daniel probably develops a relationship and a rapport with King Nebuchadnezzar over the ensuing years. And so it gets to the point where he has this dream. And of the dream, it says, he has this dream, it's a huge, huge tree. In fact, there's a tree that covers the whole world, right? And the branches stretch out across the skies and, and he sees as birds come from all over and they make their nest in the branches of the tree and the little woodland creatures, the squirrels and all that, they, they come and they, and they make a home out of the roots and the base of that tree and, and, and it gives life and shelter to everything around. It's just this incredible. And then he hears this voice, in the middle of a dream, like we said a couple weeks ago, turns into a nightmare when he hears this voice. It says like, from heaven is what it sounds like. And the voice shouts out that, hey, hey, cut down the tree. And it goes, until you acknowledge the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And the tree is cut down. Like right before his eyes, in the dream, that great tree, it's cut down. It's just a stump. And then that voice comes and says, shackle it up, bind it up. And they put like chains all around the now stump of a tree. And obviously like this kind of gets to him, right? So King Nebuchadnezzar says, I want all of my magi. I want all of my wise men. I want all of the enchanters. Everybody who's anybody who knows them. I need them to come in here because I need them to tell me what this dream means. And now there's a couple different translations out of the Bible. And some versions kind of translate this, this Old Testament Hebrew word as, but they all couldn't tell him what the dream was. And other ones kind of go a different direction and say that they all wouldn't tell him what the dream meant. Now, just uh, kind of my take on things, I think because of the nature of the dream and kind of the thrust of the dream, I think it's, it's that they wouldn't tell him what the dream was because I think a fourth grader could interpret what this dream was, right? Like when he's contented and prosperous and he's basically running the whole world and then you have a tree the size of the wor world and, and a voice that says like, cut down that tree. And it's like, dude, I don't know if this is gonna like work out well for you. I think it's that he surrounds himself with such yes men, with, with, with people that just want to go along with, with him and whatever he says because who he is and however powerful he is, that, they, that none of them, want to be the one to tell him, Neb, the dream is you, or the tree is you. 
The dream is about you. And so they all say, no, I can't, I can't, I won't tell you the dream. And then he remembers this relationship that he has with somebody that always gave it to him straight, no matter how much he didn't want to hear it. And he summons Daniel. And Daniel asks him, what's the dream? And he says, this big tree and this voice from heaven, this is cut it down. Cut it down because there's only, there's only one sovereign God and all the kingdoms of the world are his to give and his to take away. And Nebuchadnezzar just goes, or uh, Daniel, by the way, just goes quiet. He doesn't say anything. In fact, it's like just mouth shut, nothing there. Nebuchadnezzar is like frustrated at this and starts to ask him, hey, hey, come on, man, you're, you're Daniel. You're brave. You're courageous. Someday, some church is going to do a series about you in this story. Like, <laughs> open your mouth and tell me what in the world does the dream mean? And Daniel thinks for a minute, and he goes, king, king, if only the dream was about somebody else. If only the dream was about your enemies, anybody who's not you. But king, it isn't. It's about you. And this is what he says, verse 24. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, this is the decree the most high has issued against my lord, the king. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven times, that's a euphemism, years, seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge, again, that the Most High is sovereign over all, all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. I am Nebuchadnezzar. I am the emperor, the ruler of Babylon and the whole world from my perspective. And you're telling me that I'm going to be driven out of here and I'm going to live with wild animals. I'm going to eat grass, sleep outside, and wake up wet from the dew. Is that what you're telling me? And Nebuchadnezzar, again, white, as a sheet, goes, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And he goes, awesome, but that's like a metaphor, right? And he goes, exactly, exactly like that fiery furnace from last chapter was a metaphor. You remember that? Because my friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into that furnace. No, it's not a metaphor. Like, literally, you're going to be cast out and you're going to eat grass, and you're going to sleep outside and wake up drenched from, the, drenched from the dew. Like, that's how bad it's going to be for you. Because, again, no matter how high you think you are, no matter how influential or privileged that you think you are, there is always somebody higher. There is always somebody more privileged. There's always somebody more influential. There's always someone just above you. And so the story continues because there is some good news embedded within it in verse 26. Now the command, the command to leave the stump of the tree, Daniel says, with its roots is a, a good news. It means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge this awesome phrase that heaven rules. King, don't you get it? Like you're going to lose your mind and you're going to go out and you're going to eat grass and you're going to sleep outside. But king, when you come to your senses, and when you acknowledge that heaven rules, not you, I think you're going to get your kingdom back. Now, that's like the official interpretation. This is um, Daniel saying, God told me, so I'm going to tell you. And I think it's because of like the 25-year span that has been like uh, around at this time or the, the, simply the rapport that Daniel has built with the king. He gives an add-on to that line. He goes, 
It's not just an acknowledgement that there is somebody above you and more influential than you. There's also an action that goes along with that. Verse 27, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. And Daniel's like, hey, this isn't like God told me to tell you. This is just, I've been around long enough to know this is kind of how it works. This is my advice. Take it or leave it. He goes, renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. Now, I just think that's super cool because really on one hand, it's the king's job to do that. The whole like tree with, with the birds that make their nests and the branches and the, and the base of the tree with the little woodland creatures making homes out of the, the roots and everything. Like, that's a king's job. A king's job is to make sure to like look after the, the widow and the orphan. I mean, this is like written down, not just Bible stuff. This is like world history stuff. It's the king's job to make sure that the society is functioning as it should be and taking care of all of the members of the society, especially the least and poorest among us and among them. And he obviously wasn't doing that. And so Daniel, he calls out the king. couple points on that. Uh, number one, I just need it to like sink in for all of us trying to, on this journey following Jesus, that there is an acknowledgement here, but then Daniel also adds that there's an action here, right? That it's not enough and it's not good enough to simply acknowledge that heaven rules, but we also have to realign our hearts, realign our priorities around that fact that heaven rules. It's not just an acknowledgement. It's also an action. If you want to, you could say it's not just a set of beliefs, a belief system, but it's also a set of behaviors that comes along with that. In like old school theological language that some of us may appreciate, it's not just orthodoxy, a right belief, but it's also an orthopraxy, something we hear less about. It's a right action, a right walking behind God. You see, for Daniel and like putting this together, he's like, you can't have one without the other. You can't say that you believe something, but then the fruit of your life indicates something else entirely. They have to be the same. And so my advice, King, in the counter church from Daniel would be, whatever you say you believe, your behavior better back it up. Whatever you acknowledge, your actions better reinforce that. This is so important. It goes, it goes way beyond just our Christian witness to, to Kentwood, to Grand Rapids, the surrounding areas. It goes way beyond that because it cuts to, a, to the very core of our salvation to say, to say it is possible it is possible to, to, for Nebuchadnezzar and for each one of us to deceive ourselves into the point and trick ourselves into thinking that, that we're included in this, in this salvation plan of God simply by saying that we believe something. But if like our actions don't follow that thing up, if we don't see the spirit of God moving in our hearts and bearing that good fruit, it's time to re-examine that first proposition about the acknowledgement and the belief because maybe we don't actually believe it. Like, this is so important for us to get behind that. We did these values list. You're going to hear so much more about these in the coming time. The next series, in fact, is called We Are For, with like under, you know, like fill in the blank. We are for because the church has always known what it's against. So we're like, hey, this is what we're for. And one of our big values, check it out on the website. You know, you heard about this maybe if you're a partner before. Um, One of the big values is called practice truth. And it's all about, it's about realigning our behavior, realigning our thoughts, realigning our whole self 
ourselves around God's word because it is so incredibly easy to let ourselves off the hook, to minimize stuff, to deny that it's even a factor, to blame it on somebody else. But we have to believe and behave. We have to acknowledge and act. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy, they have to come together. You don't get one without the other. But that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar's deal. What I love about this like bravery, this biblical bravery, this godly courage that Daniel has when he's confronting the king, nobody else wants to give him this news. This is not good news to give to a king. What I love behind this is that, is it because of how pride works? You don't see it in yourself. I don't see it in myself. The only way that I can see it in myself is how nasty or how visceral my reaction is when I see it in somebody else. But, but I don't see it in myself. So here's the thing. Chances are, if, some, if I'm going to get called out on this, if somebody's going to help me in my relationship with God on this point, it's probably because someone else is going to talk to me about this thing. Someone else is going to have to summon up the courage. Someone else is going to have to summon up the biblical bravery to speak into my life and say, Dirk, you want to practice truth. This is what I see. There's something inside of you. That takes courage. That takes bravery. And this is so important because on the way home, you might talk about this and you might have a conversation with someone that you came here with. And on the way out, you're going to say, Hey, do you think like that applied to me or not? You know, and there's going to be like this this pause and another person is going to collect her thoughts, collect his thoughts and give you a response. And so I just, in that pause, like consider this, Daniel is not concerned. His primary concern is not being right. He knows that he's right. He's speaking on behalf of God. You get it. Like he knows he's right, but that's not his heart. That's not his concern. 25 years has gone by with the king. He's developed an affection for the king. There's a mutual trust with the king. We know because he doesn't die after this story from Nebuchadnezzar's hand because he's so angry. There's this like mutual affection for the king. He's not concerned with being right. He's concerned with being right with God. Like, that'll tweet. So I'm going to say it again. He's not overly concerned, simply concerned with being right. His concern is helping Nebuchadnezzar get right with God. In the car ride, on your way home, and somebody asks you a question, or maybe they don't. There's just a silence. And you know, like, i got to speak into this thing. You're not concerned with simply being right. You're concerned with helping them get right with God. And in your your brutal moments of honesty, don't you want that from somebody else too? Don't you want somebody else to speak into your heart and say, listen, I know that eternity is at stake and I don't want to simply be right, but I want to help you get right with God. Nebuchadnezzar though, he doesn't care. At least not yet. In verse 28, by the way, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace, just listen to like the, the elevations and the gravities. This is cool. Walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built? It was a brand new capital city. As the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. 
You can just kind of see within that. Like, he is so proud of himself. He is, he is doing so well. And this is the time that you're like, I don't know if you should be doing this. Do you remember, like, what happened a year ago? And this is the point in the story. Like, if this was a made-for-TV movie, there'd be some really cheesy music that came on. Or if it was a scary movie, everybody would be like, don't go there. Don't say that. Why are you going down into the basement? Like, you know, you know the scary, spooky mu- music starts going. You're like, oh, this is not going to be good in verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips of, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's like, whoa, deja vu. I've heard this before. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. And, and, and seven times or years will pass by for you until you acknowledge, here it is, that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately... What has been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. One more time, he was driven away from people, ate grass like the ox, his body drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his his nails like the claws of a bird. If you're thinking, there's no way. I mean, this is how you know that you would not make this story up because it seems so unbelievably far-fetched. But thanks to Wikipedia, where all the content comes from. No, I'm just, this is actually like a real mental disorder that somebody, this guy actually in England had it for five years where it's called boanthropy, where he believed that he was, he's in like an ox or a cow or something. He was in a hospital and they like led him out and he grazed on the field and the grounds of the hospital every day for five years before he was, but that's totally beside the point. I'm just like, he, he's driven out and like, he goes from the rooftop of the presumably tallest palace all the way down below and sleeps on the ground outside and gets covered with dew. And seven years goes by. And I don't know like how with losing his mind and I don't know how like, some of this comes together, but he at least has like, like just a moment of sanity enough to, in verse 34, lift his eyes up at that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored and I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. In 36, at that time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me and the glory, for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my soul and, and even became greater than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He is able to humble. Like most of us, we think of a a humbling situation. And it's obviously one of those things in life that we just don't so badly want to avoid and get rid of. We don't want to be humbled, but have we considered it a gift? I remembered, um, I remember when Encounter like bought this building, this church and stuff. And uh, previous to that, we were in a week by week rental in a cafeteria, which is awesome. And I still have scars from the trailer. You know what I'm talking about, um, of unloading. And I remember the, the, the moment of like coming to church when I didn't have to get up that morning and, and like bring church to church. Like it was just here from the week before. And it was so awesome. I'm like, I have arrived. And I remember that moment because I preached an entire message with my zipper down. <laughs> 
And people have not forgotten. It was a humbling experience. And to this day, you'll see me kind of all the time, just like check, just to make sure I'm not doing it again. It's a humbling, humbling experience to be brought low. But some of you also know what I'm talking about, and it was far worse. It was so much worse because it wasn't just a zipper down or an embarrassing situation or a slip up of the tongue. It was far worse because you were caught in something that you never wanted to admit to. And the ramifications of that thing was something that you never wanted to see happen to you or never thought that it possibly could happen to you. And now you're looking back at that thing in the rearview mirror and you're going, complete and utter destruction. If only I could have admitted it when it was still new. If only I could have sought help when I needed it so badly. Nebuchadnezzar eventually got there by the sheer gift of God in a seven-year-long journey. He came around to praise the God who gave him everything. But the next king wouldn't. The next king in Daniel chapter 5 that followed Nebuchadnezzar loved to, loved to hang out in a semicircle and get everybody around him, all of his kings and all of his nobles and everybody else. And, and they would sit and they would mock the gods of the nations that they had conquered. And when they, and when they brought out the, the relics from the Jerusalem temple, a, a hand came and started carving on the wall words that said, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parses. And nobody knew what it meant, but, but that new king, that new emperor's wife said, I remember a man who's now in his old age. He can interpret these words. And Daniel comes in and says, keep your gold, keep your gifts. I'll tell you what it means. Your days are numbered and you're called to give an account. This very night, in fact, your life will be asked from you. And they... And they laughed at him, and they mocked him, if not out loud in their hearts, but that very moment, according to history, King Darius of the Persians was outside that very city and palace, and he was timing the river ebbs and flows, and ebbs and flows, and ebbs and flows, and he just got it exactly right. The river went down, and the army rushed in, and that Babylonian king his life was called to account for everything that he had, everything at his disposal. And he came up short. Listen, you have a humbling experience, whatever it is, even if it hasn't happened yet, please have the courage to ask God just what it is you're supposed to learn, what pride it is that you're supposed to set aside, and what way you're supposed to look in the mirror and say, it's not mine. Everything that I have, it's a stewardship, it's not an ownership, it's on loan, it's not something to keep, it's a lease, it isn't an own. Everything that I have, the family, the job, the car, the house, the influence, the authority, it's not mine. And so, I pray that together, that we will join the chorus of the New Testament church who had God cheering them on and who looked up and saw their Lord crucified and resurrected, beating death 
And corporately together, they gathered around and they sang a song to remind themselves about what they have to be proud of. And they sang a song of Jesus himself and they said, they said that Jesus, we're gonna have the same attitude who being in the very nature God, Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We have that same attitude rather He made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even, friends, even death on a cross. That is the antidote to pride. That is our path forward to avoid the destruction that Proverbs talks about. You are a king. You are not the king. We serve the king who in humility gave his life for us. Let's stand up and pray to that king together.